Well, hello again, friends. We are back with episode 77 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. We're in the month of May in full swing with some great R content coming your way. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, I'm joined by my excellent co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how's it going over there today? Great. It's uh, warming up here in Connecticut, and uh, we're heating up with some more our weekly highlights this week. You bet. We got a lot of hot stuff to talk about, and I um, hope you all are enjoying the early days of summer wherever you are in the world. And this week's issue was curated by a good friend of mine, Colin Fay, of course, the architect of one of our favorite art packages in the shiny ecosystem, Golem, among many other cool things. Um, and he's got a great issue for us, and he's had great help from our, our Wuku team members and, of course, all the contributors like you listening all around the world. So we're going to start with uh, getting into some of something that really tickled my uh, retro gaming hearts for our first highlight. But those that have heard me before, whether it's in this or my previous podcast, know that I love me some retro gaming. I was fortunate enough to experience what I would consider the early golden age of gaming back from the early early days of Atari 2600 all the way to the explosion of PC and modern consoles many, many years later. One of my favorite genres has been the role-playing game or RPG, as there is something to me that's so much fun about progressing through like a novel-like story. And then you're hunting for treasure or getting that, that boss that has that key item that you need to get to progress in the rest of the way. Now, in these old school RPGs, not so much these very fancy modern ones, you would often have random encounters with the enemies on the world map or in the dungeon itself. And of course, they would have random you know, hit points that they would inflict against you, and you hope for the best that your party's hit points are at the right level so you can counteract that and get your rewards afterwards. One thing to note is that a lot of times these dungeons or these caves that you have to go into, they were static for the most part um, as part of the game design. Now, little did I know that as I was playing these as a young lad, that there was another subgenre within the RPG um, category called rogue or roguelike games, where it wasn't just like the enemies or the, the bad things that were randomly placed somewhere. The actual dungeons themselves are randomly generated, giving it a whole bunch of replay value and a lot of... Uh, I'm sure fun moments, depending on when you play the game. Now, I promise I'm not changing our weekly into a retro gaming podcast yet. Um, But I will say that in our first highlight, um, we're bringing some of these fun roguelike elements and dungeon crawling to your friendly R console itself. Now, in his latest blog post, Matt Dre who's actually embarked on turning R into fun gaming engines before, he discusses a brand new effort to create a procedural generated dungeon crawler in R because why not? (laughs) So with Matt's roguelike package that already comes with the bits to actually lay things out from a more technical standpoint of the initial dungeon layout, and the ability to let the user navigate through the the map via keyboard presses that the R console can actually grab itself. He wanted to take it up a notch and actually replicate this aforementioned 
random dungeon generation procedures in R itself. Now, the techniques that Matt uses to make all this happen, I think are actually quite approachable if you're actually wanting to learn more, maybe in the realms of programming in terms of how things like R or other languages could be used to accomplish this. There's actually quite a bit of theory and methodology out there in, in, the, in the World Wide Web, so to speak, on these different algorithms that can be used to make these randomly generated dungeons actually kind of logically feasible to crawl through. And that's a fascinating subgenre in and of itself. But if nothing else, I think, you know, on top of having fun with this package or this um, functionality, I think it can be a good learning opportunity to kind of learn how to program certain random elements and actually learn how you can interact with R in slightly different ways than just a typical data processing pipeline. But enough of my uh, love for retro gaming here. Mike, what did you think about a dungeon crawler in R? Are you amazed as much as I am? So one thing I found really cool in the blog is that Matt actually includes a link to a service called Binder, which I wasn't previously familiar with. But it's it's just a cloud instance where you can launch uh, Studio with his package, uh, which is called r.oglike so roguelike just with a with a period after the r pre-installed in that r studio instance and i would recommend if you're going to do that to make sure that you have a little bit of free time because i launched the game and i probably played it for about a half an hour it is awesome <laughs> but uh, maybe today you know this isn't something that i can see you know bringing in directly into my data science day-to-day pipeline. But just even knowing that stuff like this is possible is really valuable because maybe I'll have a future problem I need to solve where some sort of interactive console type of R package will be the solution. And I wouldn't even know that something like this is possible. It's like, you know, I don't know what I don't know. If it weren't for people like Matt who are doing really creative things with the language of R. So I had so much fun playing with it myself. I encourage you to as well. When you have a few minutes, you use your keyboard um, within the R console to sort of navigate up, down, left, and right using the W, A, S, and D keys uh, to explore that map while fighting enemies and and collecting objects. So absolutely worthwhile checking it out. Um, No matter if you're an R expert or, or an R beginner, anything like that. Who doesn't love to play games with R? So great job, Matt. I was I was actually getting flashbacks to my high school days with those um, graphing calculators. In my case, it was a TI-83 and then a TI-85. You know, we put on those, right? We put these breakout or Arkanoid clones and Tetris and all sorts of things because who needs to hear about algebra all the time? Let's just... just just have a little fun. We know the we know the material anyway, right? We always get A's. Well, most of the time. But, <laughs> but yes, I could definitely see this being pulled up in a boring meeting or something to keep you entertained for a bit. Not that I would ever do that. You didn't hear that from me. Um, but yes, um, so I'm going to be playing with this a bit more. And I think this is a great way for people to learn more about, you know, the ways you can bind R with other ways of generating user input. Um, So I I think there's a lot more in this space that can be done. Matt definitely has a few uh, future ideas he wants to pursue, like even randomly placing 
other elements of the map, like the enemies and everything like that. There's there's lots of there's lots of interesting bits that this can take. But yeah, um, the just mentioned to all of you listening, the R Weekly Highlights Podcast does not endorse time wasting, only occasionally. <laughs> you know, if it's R related, I mean. Well, then it's not a time waste, is it? Well, That's there, a great point. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> the more you know, everybody, the more you know. And speaking of the more you know, one of our familiar friends who's been on a few of the R Weekly Highlight stories recently is back at it again with some more Plot 2 magic. So, Mike, who are we talking about today again? Albert Rapp. He is on an absolute hot streak for R Weekly, and that's because he keeps pushing out these awesome blog posts. A lot around ggplot, and this one is no exception. This one is all about turning the square corners of your bar charts into rounded corners. And Albert does this via the GG Chiclet package first, albeit he has to access a GG Chiclet function that isn't actually exported. So good sleuthing by Albert to see that that um, was even an unexported function sort of GG Chiclet under the hood. And then next, he does it without the help of any additional packages other than ggplot. So no ggchiclet, he throws that away and he does it from scratch, uh, rounding these corners on these bar charts. And he dives deep into manipulating grobs, which I never knew was a term that is short for graphical objects. I'd seen grobs a, a million times, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, data viz in R and ggplot, especially in the GR devices, uh, base packages, and stuff like that. Short for graphical objects. Everything makes sense now. My day is absolutely blown. So essentially, (laughs) if you create a ggplot object, you can pass that object to the ggplot function called ggplotgrob, which will return this nested list of all of the specific visual attributes and data that live behind the scenes of the chart visual that you see in your viewer in our studio. But you sort of take for granted, you know, not necessarily the metadata, but everything that goes into um, under the hood, making that visual appear the way it is, whether that be labels, sizes of bars, all, all sorts of stuff like that. If you enjoy the challenge of working with deeply, deeply nested lists, this is definitely the blog post for you. Um, Albert even employs both per functions uh, and base R mapping functions like do.call. So no matter what your take is on the tidyverse versus base R debate this week, there is something here for everyone. Uh, great blog post, Albert. Yeah, what's interesting is the last time I, first I didn't know what, what Grob stood for either. So yes, the more you know in a different way on the on the episode. But um, the last time I interacted with those is when I had to have a pretty, what looked like a simple bar chart, um, but I had to annotate additional metadata on like the groups those bars represented as text under the plot itself. And it couldn't be just a simple axis label. I had to like combine two grobs and stitch them together, not too dissimilar to what packages like patchwork are trying to do for you in a much easier way. But I remember having to hack the grob system made my head spin a little bit, but when you get into that, that list structure that you mentioned, there is a lot of information you can take and then pull out or manipulate directly on, rewrite it back out to the uh, typical ggplot2 function. 
So I think that's another great way to kind of learn what's under the hood of ggplot2 and the grid graphics engine in a nutshell is kind of getting into the innards of this and being able to pick apart certain things or tweak it the way you want. So um, the other interesting bit is the package that you mentioned initially, the GG Chicklet um, package. Um, Bob Rudis, the original author that caught wind of, of this story after the issue was released and kind of gave his reasoning why that was not an exported function. And it honestly kind of turn, turns into where that could lead to in terms of possible support for that functionality and making sure that he had you know time for his other development duties. So maybe if someone wants to take that challenge on and kind of bring that into a dedicated um, role, maybe Bob would be happy to work with you on that. But that's a that's a nature of open source sometimes is it will put different hooks to some functionality that maybe is you might say off label use for a package, but it becomes useful in certain ways like this. If I think about some of the other, you know, out of the box, you know, pay for it data viz tools, I can think of some where you just have a toggle within the UI to round the corners of a bar chart. And the chart that Albert puts together in this blog post is beautiful. Um, and I have never really, I guess, ran into a use case with ggplot where I cared or even thought about rounding the corners. But you would think that that would be a little bit easier to do than uh, it is based upon Albert's blog post. And, and totally understand uh, Bob Rudis's perspective of not wanting to maintain you know, something that could get a lot bigger than it currently is. Um, but I do think and agree that it's potentially an opportunity for someone else out there to, to take that on because a lot of the groundwork is sort of already laid. It's just a matter of, you know, potentially maintenance. Yep. Yep. So yeah, fascinating post as always by Albert and you're, you're bound to learn something new, like you said, no matter which uh, perspective you're coming from on that field. So rounding out our highlights for today, um, we got some great updates to share with respect to the Tidy Models uh, suite of packages. They keep rolling on with many new improvements. And for those that aren't aware, Tidy Models is somewhat akin to the Tidyverse itself of bringing all the different parts of modeling in that various pipeline into things that are definitely more Tidy you know, ecosystem friendly. And there are specific packages in the Tidy Models umbrella that are tailored to different parts of the process, such as before you even fit a model, the recipes package alongside its own set of extensions, they bring an assortment of pre-processing routines that can be easily applied before the modeling step is actually executed. And so there's been some recent advancements in recipes itself and our studio software engineer, Emil Wittfeld, hope I'm saying that right out loud, um, has wrote a quick summary of the latest updates to the recipe family. So Mike, what's been cooking in the recipes world? For those of us building predictive models, we're so fortunate to have the brilliant folks over at our studio, um, Emil and Max and Julia Silge and, and all sorts of contributors maintaining these rich package ecosystems like the Tidyverse and Tidy Models. When you build a popular package, there are going to be a million different ways that end users are going to actually apply it to their particular use cases, especially in the case of predictive modeling. And it's hard to envision all of those potential use cases up front. 
I remember listening to Max Kuhn talk about his transition a few years ago, leaving Pfizer and joining our studio to work full time on Toddy Models and saying that the toughest part for him was that he doesn't really get his hands on real data anymore. So it can be tough to build tools without any actual data other than Iris, you know, diamonds, uh, empty cars, the Ames housing data, you know, et cetera. So often when a new modeling feature needs to be incorporated, somebody will write a, a pull request and it will get merged into an existing package. But other times, I think the feature is maybe so bespoke or leads in, in such a direction, you know, maybe it's a new algorithm for pre-processing or something like that that it actually makes more sense to develop a separate tangential R package altogether that houses that logic. And three such packages that live within the Tidy Models ecosystem are Embed, Themis, and Text Recipes, which mostly all deal with pre-processing data before it hits your model. These three packages really serve as complements to the Recipes package, which recently got a big version 0.2.0 release, which is what spawned some updates to these three other packages. I don't do a lot of NLP type modeling on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know if you do, Eric. Um, so I haven't interfaced with text recipes yet, but I really enjoy the Themis package, which has a ton of pre-processing functionality for dealing with class imbalance data specifically. So upsampling, downsampling, rows, smote, all those good ones. I know Max, himself has a lot to say on the topic of what you should do with class imbalance data, uh, but also the embed package has some incredibly useful supervised methods for embedding predictors into one or more numeric columns. I've used it in the past for creating weight of evidence transformations, which essentially turn categorical predictors into numeric predictors based upon the ratio that a predictor class appears in the data against the two outcome classes or your dependent variable. It's a common step in building a credit scorecard, uh, which is a line of work that we do a lot of work in, like an in-house version of you know, FICO or Experian. And something I was honestly shocked to see existed in the Tidy Models ecosystem. I was sure that I was gonna have to implement weight of evidence transformations by hand, but lo and behold, ML, Max, and company had already done all the heavy lifting for me. So there's even more functionality in these 0.2.0 releases. Uh, absolutely check them out. Yeah, there's some very exciting updates. And, and I was reading through the blog post, I couldn't help but notice in that discussion about class imbalance, the data they have was actually on HPC job submissions. So that tickled my, my uh, geeky heart with all things HPC. I'm going to have to try to do that. Some of the internal data I have in my company about that. That's some fun uh, modeling adventures there. But but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to start trying to leverage these again. Um, I haven't been as involved in the um, actual ML development space lately, but I've always been itching at the chance to to put the, the, newer, the newer developments of Tidy Models into play. And, and for those listening, if you want to hear more about kind of the early days of Tidy Models, and I mean like a few years ago, um, we'll put a link to my conversation with Max Kuhn back from episode 28 of the R podcast, which was recorded at one of the earlier R Studio comps where Max was kind enough to share the genesis and his vision of Tidy Models. And it's great to see kind of in retrospect how far that's come along 
since that conversation. So there's a lot of exciting developments here and, and congrats to, to Mo Max and Julia and others um, on the team for such great work and throughout the, throughout the years that this project has been around. And in fact, I believe they have a book coming out in the not too distant future. That will be a great um, reference for those to kind of leverage this in a similar way that many have leveraged Max's previous uh, carrot package in, in ML and, and modeling and R. So yeah, great times ahead for sure. Absolutely. So what else did you see um, besides just the top three highlights, Eric, that tickled your fancy this week? Well, from a package development standpoint, a big update's been made to the Fusion package from Sebastian Rochette at Think R, where I'd first heard about this package at a workshop I attended um, before one of the uh, Use R virtual conferences this past year where Fusion is a way for you to basically create a full-fledged R package using R Markdown as your source for development. And I was always intrigued by this, especially as I thought this might be a way for those that are newer to R itself to have a more gentle introduction to package development. But admittedly, I would get feedback, not only maybe from myself in my head, but also others that have been developing packages for a while and trying to figure out, will will fuse and help them out or should they just stick with the traditional method? So the, the updates and in this blog post, that's part of the issue cover a lot of the additional features or additional tasks that you can complete to make, you know, additional customizations to the end package fit more for what you may be doing as a typical package author, like linking functions to certain documentation, um, overall documentation, documenting internal data sets, running examples or choosing not to run examples, but all the different ways that we've been doing kind of more in the traditional package development sense, but the equivalence in the Fusion workflow. So is Fusion for everybody? Probably not, but I do think it is got a lot of advantages that may go unnoticed until you read this great uh, blog post from Sebastian and the team over there. So that was certainly interesting to see. But Mike, looks like you found something that would fit right in what we were talking about earlier. I did. I found the Event Loop R package, which uh, was created by Mike, who's cool but useless on Twitter. And uh, so you might know him from there. And this package called Event Loop is for rendering interactive graphics and handling mouse and keyboard events from the user at speeds fast enough to be considered interesting for games and other real-time applications. Ooh. I thought this one tied in nicely to our first highlight um, on pushing the limits of R and games in R. R has some built-in functionality for handling user events um, within the graphics devices, but Mike wanted to take it a few steps further and shows you how you can actually launch an interactive R graphics device pane for using your mouse to draw. It's as if you're in you know, Microsoft Paint or something like that. So check out the bottom of the post for a nice workflow diagram of how it all works under the hood from the X11 window to the actual event, you know, like a mouse click, to what gets actually captured under the hood in the event environment. Uh, try saying that 10 times fast, <laughs> event environment. That uh, So definitely check that one out. And then non-R Weekly highlights, but big news out of our consortium. Pfizer today announced that they joined our consortium. So this is exciting news out of the uh, our pharma space in that such a large player 
in life sciences has joined the R consortium. So, so great to see more R uh, scientific work going on out there. Shout out Connecticut, Pfizer based in Connecticut. So uh, if you're signing up for looking for your next jab, make sure that you choose Pfizer. Uh, they, they may or may not be sponsoring our podcast now. No, I'm just totally kidding about about all of that, except for the part uh, where they join the Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not looking to cause any violations on this humble podcast. But um, but yes, uh, congratulations. Um, I know I have quite a few uh, very talented uh, uh, connections to those advisors. So I'm sure that was a, a great effort to get that going. But it does show, um, as you alluded to, Mike. Um, the presence, the growing presence that R has in many, many different aspects of clinical development. These are things that I, you can hear me talk about in various working groups and especially the annual R Pharma conference that will happen later this year. But I'm sure this will be, um, this will be, um, we'll hear a lot from Pfizer on that front as well. So yeah, exciting times ahead for those of us in this field. And of course, being able to use our favorite tool as part of our job is always one of our favorite parts. So speaking of favorites, well, the whole issue can be considered a favorite. So why don't you go ahead and bookmark, if you haven't already, rweekly.org, where you'll find this week's issue as well as all the previous issues um, right there at your fingertips. And please uh, get in touch if you have a, a story or a blog post that you think should be included in our next issue. That's just a pull request away. Um, go ahead to our GitHub repository, linked in every issue, and feel free to send a pull request to our draft and our curator for the week. We'll be glad to review and merge that in. So we always are greatly appreciative of all the contributions from all of you around the world. Um, certainly been a big help to us. And yes, our team is starting to expand a bit. And if you'd like to join our curator group, again, please go to rweekly.org and you'll be able to get in touch with us via contact or the GitHub repo itself. We're always happy to have more join our team. So that's going to do it for us for episode 77. Thanks again, Mike, for another great episode as always. And we will be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week.